The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Thanks for listening. This week we look at books on two of the greatest of all artists, Leonardo and Van Gogh. Martin Bailey, a London correspondent for the Art Newspaper, joins me later to talk about his new book, Living with Vincent Van Gogh, and his role in co-curating Tate Britain's current exhibition, Van Gogh and Britain. But first, if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you'll know that we've covered the many ups and downs of the world's most expensive painting, Leonardo da Vinci's Salvatore Mundi. Now, the extraordinary story of that work is told in a new book by the critic, writer and broadcaster Ben Lewis. Called The Last Leonardo, it recently made the front page of the Times newspaper in London because it reveals that when five leading Leonardo scholars were shown the painting in May 2008 at the National Gallery in London, there were some doubts about its attribution to Leonardo. To quote Ben Lewis, the final score from the National Gallery meeting seems to have been two yeses, one no and two no comments. Lewis describes how the consensus was that only part of the painting was by the master, with the remainder presumably done by his assistants. Yet, in the curator Luke Sison's catalogue entry for the painting, for the National's 2011 Leonardo blockbuster, the painting is unequivocally attributed to Leonardo and described as an autograph work. Ben Lewis joins me in a moment, but before we discuss the book, here's one of the people who was at that meeting, the Cambridge-based Leonardo specialist Martin Kemp, describing his view of the Salvatore Mundi painting from our podcast in March 2018. Most of what we see speaks of Leonardo. The difficulty is that some of the areas still with paint surviving have been quite abraded. So it's very difficult to say, well, that is absolutely Leonardo. But those areas are confined to the drapery and particularly to the interlace work, this very complex work, not work, which you may well get assistance to do. You know, Leonardo would do a passage of it and say, that's how you do it. It goes over there, under there, and how the threads work. And somebody could go on and do it. But I would say, of what I can see, the huge majority of it, I don't want to turn it into a percentage, but the huge majority of it is utterly consistent with Leonardo. And it's consistent in style and also the way he manipulates the subject matter. So it's not just a question of a connoisseurly or judgment by eye, as I prefer to call it, coming in and saying, this is Leonardo, I can tell. But there's a lot of very subtle manipulation of that subject for a particular kind of content. Ben, we just heard from Martin Kemp about his reasons for feeling that this is a Leonardo. Tell me about this meeting at the National Gallery and about what that tells us about the attribution of this painting to Leonardo. Uh, only a month or two into the research into the story of the painting and its, it's, its attribution, I started focusing pretty quickly on this National Gallery meeting. And then I noticed that everyone else who was telling the story in the Salvatore Mundi and studying the Salvatore Mundi, you know, they were all art historians. So it was all about, you know, the curls of the hair and the embroidery and the, you know, the sfumato on the face and the blessing hand and the shadow here and there. And da-da. you know, they weren't journalists. But if you're a journalist, in which, you know, I am partly, it's an interdisciplinary book, but let's face it, I am partly a journalist. I'm supposed to be quite good at that. You know, you look at events, dates, events documents what people say when and here was this meeting you know behind closed doors you know okay it's fine you, you sometimes you've got to have a meeting behind closed doors you don't want everybody to know what you said when where da, 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 da. but this meeting behind closed doors there was no minutes from it you know nothing came out of it there was the press release that came out of it was re- was printed three years later you know the meeting was in 2008 the press release was 
published, printed in 2011. Like, that's weird. So, you know, basically, something went on there. That was the pivot, in a way, of the whole story, because the attribution of the Salvatore Mundi was really the National Gallery's business. It was putting it in the Leonardo show, this big, fantastic show, whatever Luke Sison put on, putting it in there and said, this is a Leonardo. And then, you know, it could be sold as a Leonardo and we know what happened after that. So I zoomed into the meeting. I found out who was there. You know, there were five art historians. One of them was actually there only the day later, but this was the cabal or the high council, as I call it in my book. You know, and um, I just contacted them all. And it was actually incredibly difficult to get answers out of some of them. You know, like like David Allen Brown, eventually he wrote me, you know, a great email saying, I believe this is a Leonardo. The moment I saw it, I knew this was a Leonardo. I authentic- I'm one of the people who authenticated it. Very grateful for you for hearing your opinion, David Allen Brown. It took me like eight months to get that out of him. And I had to write a letter to the press, the umpteenth email to the press office saying I was going to complain that by not responding to me, they were breaching American museum guidelines. Like basically, like, that's quite a serious... Because he's know, at the charge. National Gallery of Art in Washington. Yeah, he's a big fish. And I, you know, I was basically accusing him of being unethical in order to get an answer. So that was quite extreme. You know, Pietro Morani... Um, was mm, I don't want to talk about this on the phone. I don't want to talk about this in an email. But it, but if if you you know if you come if I come to London, I'll talk to you. So I, I you know months later I went to Milan and you know he saw me and he he was you know gave, gave me his answer. I did not authenticate it as a Leonardo. Nobody asked me to. Yeah, this is interesting. He wasn't asked. Well, you know, nobody there was actually asked. Do you think this is a Leonardo? Nobody was asked to take part in either an official authentication procedure of some kind or to participate in an informal consensus. All that happened was that there was an informal discussion around the painting, right? In the conservation studio in alongside the, another Leonardo painting. Yeah, and alongside the Virgin of the Rocks, which the National Gallery also thinks is the real Leonardo, but most other people think is mostly done by assistants. So, you know, spot the, spot the agenda here. Anyway, so they're all, you know, they talk informally. And of course, they're very, you know, if you don't put an art historian on the spot, he's going to be, he or she is going to be really polite. Because why antagonize, you know, your host? Or a museum that one day you might want to borrow a work of art from, you know, I mean, professional networks are everything in art history. Uh, and in the museum world so basically they all nodded their head oh yes very interesting yes very leonardo yeah fantastic wonderful yes thank you for inviting us you know and they all went away and then um yeah luke sison the creator of the exhibition yeah reported back to sir nicholas penny that the people at the meeting had said it was a leonardo brackets although they thought some parts of it might have been painted by his assistants but the interesting thing is that Luke Sison, when he writes up the catalogue entry on the work, so it's in this exhibition, this Leonardo exhibition, and in the catalogue entry in the catalogue, he makes a quite forceful case for it being an autograph work by Leonardo. Well, Luke Sison is entitled to his opinion that this is an autograph work by Leonardo, and that is his opinion, you know, and he's a very distinguished... Uh, he's a very distinguished curator and also, you know, a really nice guy to talk to. And he passionately believes this is a Leonardo, or at least this is the last time I spoke to him. Um, but uh, the fact is that, you know, other people at that meeting were not convinced and he did not faithfully reflect their views. So you've got 
Martin Kemp and David Allen Brown on the one hand. Correct. And they are the two yeses, we think. Yeah. But there was a... And they're great. Ma- they're big yeses. They're great yeses. But Pietro Morani is also a really big Leonardo hitter. He's the Italian, you know, Leonardo scholar. He, he's the big guy and he's like, well, I'm not saying one way or the other. And then you have Maria Teresa Fiorio, who I also met, who's a, you know, fan, you know specialist in the Lenadeshi and Leonardo's assistants, pupils and followers, all that stuff. And she just said, you know, I never gave an opinion. And then like three years later... I'm reading in the newspapers that I'm one of the four people who said this was a Leonardo, you know. I mean, and she wrote me an email, you know, it's in black and white. You know, she was not very happy. And what did she say in that email? This is what, essentially, I, I never gave this authentication. Yeah, that's exactly what she said. Dear Ben, I've never issued official opinions on the uh, Salvatore Mundi, and in any any case, I've never been asked to do so. I've always discussed informally with colleagues, and I do not know what use was made of my opinion. Certainly, it happened after the London exhibition. If the Salvatore Mundi was exhibited as an autograph work at the National Gallery, it was an autonomous decision by my colleagues in London. I've never been asked for an official opinion. So I had... uh, I asked her... You know, why didn't you, if if you're if you were misused, if your views were misrepresented in this way, why didn't you bring it up? That was what I said. So she, she, you know, because I was really pursuing her. I wanted to make really sure of this. So she said, I had no reason to raise the problem with my colleagues in London. I certainly discussed it with Professor Morani, but we've known each other for thirty years, and our discussions always have a friendly and informal character. Right. So, so it, this is a really interesting thing about, and I think you bring it out really well in the book about. Actually, within the sort of scholarship community around Leonardo, there are lots of people with particular bugbears, particular passions, particular little projects. And you sort of bring this out really nicely in the book, I think. Yeah, I mean, (coughs) the the Leonardists, uh, there's no love lost between the Leonardists. And when I went through the Kenneth Clark archive at the Tate, I found this letter from Kenneth Clark uh, uh, to uh, Carlo Padretti, who was the big Italian Leonardo scholar, uh, you know, he, he dominated Leonardo scholarship in Italy in the second half of the 20th century, and he died in 2007, you know, and said the Salvatore Mundi was not by Leonardo, but he hadn't actually seen it. But anyway, I discovered a letter from uh, uh, <coughs> to him from Kenneth Clark, and, Ke- and it's a qu- quote at the front of the book, and it's basically um, the politics. The politics of Leonardo's scholarship are like any other politics, except so far no blood has been spilt. <laughs> so the, the field of scholarship, obviously, it's, so, it's such high stakes, especially with Leonardo, because there are so few paintings. And again, you go into this in quite a lot of detail in the book, don't you? You want, you, you want to trace the history of the artist and the number of paintings he's made. I mean, the book's a yarn, basically, or if you like, it's three yarns in one. You know, it's not just a sort of investigation or, you know, a journalistic account of, you know, some dodgy attribution. It's not really like that. It's basically the, the spine of the, of the book is a kind of heist story. It's a thriller. It's like, how do these guys buy a picture for 1175 bucks and within 12 years turn it into 450 million bucks that is amazing <laughs> you know and i totally salute them i think they're, I, I mean i really like them i really admire them and the fact they managed to persuade the saudis of all people to part with a half a billion dollars on this leonardo brilliant hats off to them nice one i wish we could do that every week so that's like the spine of the story. How do you, how do you do that? You know, it's amazing. It's a, 
I mean, no one's ever made so much money so quickly before. Anyway, there's that. And then underneath that, there's the history of the painting, you know, and it starts as a, you know, it starts with a walnut tree because it's painted on walnut wood and, you know, you get the, the painting, the wood panel is cut and it's coated and, and then it follows the painting, you know, the POV, point of view of the painting, through these different, you know, palaces and penthouses and also, you know, dusty storerooms and dull American suburbs. You know, it, it traces this 500-year history. It has the most amazing ups and downs. I swear, no painting in the history of the world has ever had such extreme experiences and that's why you know I just so love telling the story I just that was just so amazing it was so much larger than life and then underneath that right there's a third sort of strand in a way a third book which is you know a a sort of biography of Leonardo very simple with a few different theme chapters devoted to a few different themes that takes a, sl- a slightly less reverential attitude to Leonardo than you know the books by Walter Isaacson or Martin Kemp you know I call him a as well as a genius, I call him a, a doodler and a dawdler, you know. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, the notebooks are totally chaotic, and um, he had huge problems finishing paintings. He usually gave up, you know. <laughs> Indeed. Now, of course, the story begins, as you say, in this most unlikely scenario where uh, a very uh, diligent uh, scholar and dealer, you know, kind of a small-time dealer, really. Dis- yeah. Medium-sized in- dealer. Medium-sized One dealer. of them's medium-sized, you know, erudite. And the other guy, it just he just had a load of bad luck all his life, Alex Parrish. You know, he's the guy who first saw it on the internet and stuff. And, like, great, good for him, you know. Yeah, so Alex Parrish and Robert Simon are these sort of, are these sort of unlikely brothers-in-arms. yeah. They're brilliant. Yeah, they're brilliant. They're totally unlikely couple, if you like, or partnership. You know, that's one of the joys of the book is it almost has this fictional quality. You know, I mean, Robert Simon is very quiet, very careful about everything he says, you know, really weighs everything up and says very little and discreet, you know. And Alex Parrish just blurts it all out, you know, and he actually at one point in his life became a born-again Christian, you know. He's been down on his luck so many times, you know, as he says, I've been down to one suitcase more than once in my life, you know. And he's he's used to being very low down on the food chain, whereas, uh, <coughs> you know, Robert Simon is used to being, you know, part of sophisticated, uh, you know, uptown society. And I love the way they sort of go together. And the reason they're together, right, is because ultimately they're both, pretty decent guys and they know they can trust each other right and but they both separately spotted that there was this interesting picture in this auction in 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 uh, new orleans yeah i think alex saw it first on the internet but you know robert was getting the robert was getting the hard copy catalogs in the mail and he must have seen it very shortly afterwards because when alex rang up as i understand it robert was like yeah i've seen that that looks interesting yeah right and so they bought it at this at this auction for how much $1,175. (laughs) And what happens from there? Well, they bought it. And um, they got it. They did. They never actually went to New Orleans. They sent. They got a courier to pick it up. Whatever. It's great. They bought it over the internet and on the telephone. They got a courier to pick it up. Took it to New York. You know, got it to New York. Alex unpacked it and it's like, oh, this looks really interesting. And then you know, Robert Simon took a look at it and was like, yeah. And then Robert, you know, had, had some connections to a, a very distinguished restorer couple. You know, uh, Mario, Mario and Diane Modestini, husband and wife, both restorers, sort of worked together some of the time. 
and um, he he brought it round to them and showed it showed it to them. And, and, and you know, Mario was just a year away from death, sadly. And he, but he looked at it and was like, "Hmm, it's not a Leonardo. It's but it's painted by somebody really good a generation after his death." You know, that's quite interesting, and it's that's quite revealing that he would say that. You know, and then um, Robert asked Diane to restore it, and she said, "Yeah, I'll do it." And did she believe it was a, a Leonardo? Well, she, at a certain point in the restoration, she came to believe it was a Leonardo, yes. By that point, her husband had died, and I think she was in a very emotional state, you know. I mean, she was really upset about his death, and she'd write, she actually writes about it in, her, in a chapter in his memoir. She writes the last chapter about, you know, about restoring the self to Mundi, and she says, you know, she was taking various kinds of medication to calm down and, you know, she was carrying on a conversation with Mario in her head. So I think one could argue that the picture took on a somewhat larger-than-life role in her in her inner world. And but anyway, she was restoring it, you know, and she came to a point, I think she was doing the mouth, I can't remember, I think it was the mouth, you know, and she thought the mouth was just so delicately painted you know, that it, only Leonardo could paint like that. But, you know, actually restorers aren't really meant to make attributions and it, it's a very difficult area whether, you know, one of Leonardo's followers could actually paint a mouth just like Leonardo. I mean, they certainly knew how. It's interesting, isn't it? But, but, but I suppose one of the the most interesting... Her role is really pivotal in this process, isn't it? Because she took on the painting when it was in really pretty shabby condition. Can you give us some of the details about uh, what it looked like when it came into her, well, not her possession, but into her studio? Oh, God, it was a total wreck. And that was that wreck was the word that um, the fantastic British art historian Ellis Waterhouse used when he saw the painting at the Sotheby's auction in 1958, which was when a painting was sold to a New Orleans furniture company executive for 45 quid. Anyway, he saw the picture, just like wreck, you know, wreck. It was a Cook collection picture. There's a fact that isn't in my book that I only discovered today or yesterday or last week because I keep following stuff up. So it was bought, right, at the Cook collection sale in Sotheby's 1958 for £45, right? That's nothing. And there were lots of other more expensive pictures from the Cook collection that sold for a lot more. Now, one of them was uh, Cesare de Sesto, St. Jerome, which was actually hanging below the Salvatore Mundi. It was 107 in the Cook Collection catalogue, and the Salvatore Mundi's 106A. So, you know, you've got the Cesare de Sesto underneath, right? The Salvatore Mundi goes for 45 quid. Uh, ben, how much do you think the Cesare de Sesto goes for? £1,750. So an, an astronomically larger amount than the Salvatore Mundi. Yeah, I went to see it last week. It's in the Southampton Art Gallery. Anyway, you were asking me something completely different. The state of the picture was, it was a total wreck. It had... only about 20% of the picture was Leonardo's final layers on it, right? 20% of the picture was sort of scratched away to the wood or somebody else's overpaint. And then 60% was sort of Leonardo's underlayers plus somebody else's overpaint here and there. In fact, it had obviously been restored many, many times in its history. I mean, it had been restored once in the late 20th century, but it had also been restored, you know, at least once in the 19th century, if not twice, you know. And it's one of these sort of hybrid works of art. You know, it, the, artist, the original artist Leonardo might have been involved. The 
the studio worked on it, his assistants were not really sure which, and then restorer after restorer worked on it to repair whatever damage, you know, somebody had done to it along the way. I mean, just, I mean, art history is a lot richer than one thinks, you know, and there are often many more authors than one thinks in a work of art. But this one, in terms of like, in terms of the amount of damage the Salvatore Mundi had, right, and in terms of where that damage was, like most of it on the face, and this is a portrait, you know, I think we can safely say that no newly discovered painting by a major artist has ever had so much damage on it when it was discovered. One of the big factors in that is the fact that it's painted on walnut with a knot in a really crucial part of the panel. Yeah. This is one of the sort of inexplicable reasons. You know, this this doesn't tally with the great technician Leonardo who was very careful about True. the surfaces he painted on and all that kind of stuff. True. And one of the first things Frank Zollner, who's, who wrote the catalogue raisonne of Leonardo's paintings and, and drawings too, one of the first things Frank Zollner said to me in his sort of gruff German was, no, I don't think Leonardo would, you know, would use a piece of wood like that. I mean, he knew about wood. He was uh, very interested in technique and t- technology. No, very difficult to imagine. You know, I mean, the wood was already a problem. And then not only that, normally if there's a knot in a panel, and God knows there are plenty of paintings out there from the Renaissance with knots in the panel. The knot is filled in with vegetable fibres to sort of help it, you know, contract expand you know in different heat different dry dry or humid conditions to make it a bit safer you know and this knot had not been filled in and i find that you know incredibly mysterious i mean it's almost inexplicable really what what are the characteristics of the paintings that convince you that leonardo may have had a hand in it oh there's a few of those the blessing hand is extremely subtle uh, you know it's very softly lit and it's got kind of really cool little shade, little shadows along the fi- along the fingers, and the fingernails are really kind of subtly done. And then, if you look at the orb hand, there's some really nice uh, highlights on the fingertips that are like reflected light. That's luster that Leonardo wrote about. Although you can sometimes see that on other copies of the Salvator Mundi. And then there are these fantastic sort of ringlets on them. Uh, on the uh, well, right side of his head, I think. It's right when you're looking at it. You know, it's like a double helix of ringlets. And that's like such a specific structure. And if you look at all the paintings by Leonardo's followers, the hair is quite schematic and they don't have an amazing shape in there like that. So when you look at that shape, it's quite like... It's difficult not to think Leonardo didn't have a big hand to play in it. But you just don't know if there's some... You know, if he'd done a drawing like that once upon a time, which is now which is now lost, which an assistant used. And what about the optics? Because, again, you know, we know that Leonardo was this great scientist, but you think that there were some inconsistencies because it wouldn't a great scientist have have captured the optics in the orb, for instance, and also the distance of the figure from the hand and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, the optics in the orb are bizarre, absolutely bizarre there's another um, German art historian based in Switzerland called Dietrich Siebold who looked at the infrared and thought he could see that actually in the underdrawing the artist did bend the light bend the drapery folds behind the orb but he's not really sure about it but it's just bizarre that there's no there's no strong indication whatsoever that the you know light alters behind the orb and I don't think it's very difficult to conceive of Leonardo painting something like that just so erroneously. I mean, you can imagine him toning it down or something, but not 
totally like that. And if you look at the, the you know, the glass, the, the, the wine in the glasses in the Last Supper in the Royal Academy, you can see a little bit of refraction, you know, with the robes and stuff behind, you know, it's... It's not ma- major, but there's a little bit going on, you know. And the other thing is, the other strange thing about the opti- the optics is, you know, the face. Ma- Martin Kemp suggested that the reason the face is so sort of ethereal and blurred, and the hand is so crisp, is because you know Leonardo was sort of using depth of field, and you know he'd written about aerial perspective, and he said that if things were further away, Leonardo, you know, advised in his note in his the notes he for his treatise on painting, he said if things are farther away, they should look less distinct. You know, but if that's the case, you know, why is Leonardo's face so ethereal, but the hair, which is in the same plane, why is that so sharp? There were all sorts of inconsistencies, in other words. Oh, it's just a fantastic puzzle. I mean, the whole painting is just a fantastic puzzle, you know. I mean, it, it, the sense in the book of, is, is really like it's a sort of rollicking tale, apart from anything else. And, of course, this, this is consistent with a lot of your work before you came to even think about Leonardo in terms of studying the art world and what you see as a, the deep corruptions and, and problems with the art world. Can you tell us more about that? Well, um, I have in the past made a very critical film about the contemporary art market. And I tried to take a step back, really, with this book and just, you know, there's lots of opinions by me at the end of the book. But until then, there's a major effort just to lay out the facts and the pluses and the minuses and try and encourage the reader to reach an opinion. But, you know, you're asking me for my opinion You know, here we have a newly discovered painting by the greatest artist who ever lived, and it dare not show its face. You know, it's invisible. It's disappeared. It's so shameful, you know, that it can't be seen. I mean, that's really damning of, if you like, the art ecosystem. I mean, something is going seriously wrong. And it's not, in a way, it's not really for me to say what that is. I mean, this is so bad that it's like over to you guys, over to you, Martin Kemp, over to you, Luke Sison, you know, over to you, Nicholas Penny, over to you, Pietro Morani, you know, sort this out. What, in, what, what are your theories about, on the one hand, where is it? And, and, and also, why, why do we not know where it is? Well, we're pretty sure it's in Switzerland. <clears throat> because if you want to move it, right... It's very, very delicate. It's in five different pieces that are delicately glued together. You paid $450 million for it. You know, you're not going to put it in a plastic bag. You have to ring out the restorer, Diane Modestini, really, in New York and make sure how to do it. No, I mean, no, nobody entrusted with moving that picture is going to move it like that. Just say, move it. So in the autumn, a Swiss restorer actually did ring up Diane and said, I, you know, we were thinking about sending the picture to France. How do we move it? So it's like, oh, now we know it's in Switzerland, you know. Right. So it's it, you know it's in some lockup in Switzerland. It's almost certain that it was bought, you know, by the a de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia, Crown Prince, you know, Mohammed bin Salman. So he's almost certainly got it. Um, why isn't he showing it? Possibly because he wants to save it up for his own museum. But I think that there's a kind of embarrassment. Not not because it's a picture of Christ. I mean, I think that's kind of neither here nor there. But I think, you know, there are p- problems with the attribution of this painting. There are problems with the provenance of this painting. And there's problems with the restoration of this painting, all of which I sort of enumerated in my book. And I think they're worried. 
is one of the sort of purposes of this book and drawing attention to it, the front page story on the Times, is one of your hopes that that it might flush the painting out? Yes, I think we have to flush out the Salvatore Mundi. I would do anything to see it. Um, if I can just take this opportunity to tell the world, I will sacrifice any body part of which I have too if I can see the Salvatore Mundi. Yeah, I, I think we all need to see it really. And we need, to, you know, in a way, presenting the, bringing, bringing the, painting out of its hiding place it's the same as as my book it's bringing all the facts out of their hiding place and putting them in you know the public domain and when I brought a couple of stories to the art newspaper and my you know while I wrote the book and my publisher was like oh can't you save them up for the book and I'm like I just don't believe in that I think it's art it's there to be shared and if you have information you know put it out in the public domain and let's all talk about it or argue about it and if we do that I think we can come to a much deeper and more honest appreciation of whatever it is, is a really interesting painting. Is your sense that we might see it at the Louvre in the big Leonardo show later in the year? I'm going to say very, very unlikely, because the Louvre, I'm sure, want to borrow it. I'm equally sure they don't want to put a label next to it that says Leonardo da Vinci, right? That is a problem, and the guy lending it... You know, the the Saudis, I'm sure they want to see it in the Louvre in Paris, you know, but I'm sure they don't want to see it in the Louvre in Paris's workshop of Leonardo. Is that because the curator at the Louvre is one of the people that would say it's possible that it's by Leonardo, but I can't be sure? Well, the curator of the Louvre, by the last reckoning, did not have an opinion either way. And the, 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 the sort of, you know, highly placed sources tell me that the Louvre, as a collective group of curators, do not think this is an autograph Leonardo. It's going to rumble on for some time. Ben, your book is really fascinating. Thanks so much for coming on and telling us about it. Thanks for inviting me. The Last Leonardo by Ben Lewis is published by William Collins at £20 in the UK and is out now. It's published by Ballantine Books in the US and Canada on the 25th of June. Check Penguin Random House's website for details. We'll be back talking to Martin Bailey about Van Gogh after this. The great Nigerian painter Dimes Nwoko is, in the words of Booker Prize winning novelist Ben Okri, reclusive, something of a Salinger figure in African art. Nwoko left his post as Professor of Art at the University of Ibadan in 1978 to return to his village. He has been there ever since. As he told Okri for an interview in Bonham's magazine, each work can take more than a year to complete. So the recent discovery of his missing masterpiece, The Bicyclists, under a bed in Boston, Massachusetts, has been hailed as momentous. This work will be offered at Bonham's Modern and Contemporary African Art Sale in New York in May. As Bonham's Director of Modern African Art, Giles Pepiat, puts it, The Bicyclists is a signature work by Dimas Nwoko and one that's been missing from the art historical canon for far too long. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, a new book by the art newspaper's Martin Bailey looks at the life of a great painter through the places he lived and worked. Living with Vincent van Gogh inevitably covers those well-documented years in Paris and Provence. But it also looks at his earlier years in London, The Hague, Brussels and Antwerp, among many other places. As ever with Martin, it features groundbreaking new research into van Gogh's life, and particularly into a love affair he had in The Hague, which ended in tragedy. Martin is with me now. Martin, one thing that comes through in the book is this idea that, that Van Gogh very, very rarely put down any kind of roots and, and travelled almost throughout his entire adult life. 
Yes, he was always on the move and as an adult. And in fact, he probably spent longer in London than he did um, anywhere else uh, in any other city later on. I mean, he moved around for all sorts of reasons. Uh, to begin with, uh, he was looking for work. Um, he then became a Christian missionary and he failed at that. And he kept striving for something else and that would make him move on. He was very difficult to settle. And then once he became an artist, he kept thinking that if he moved to a different city or a different place, it would somehow transform his art and that he would be able to sell it. Um, of course, he never sold his art. Um, but it was actually very productive in a sense, the fact that he kept moving when he was an artist because he had the stimulation. You know, he would be working in the village uh, where his parents lived, painting the peasants. And then, of course, he went to Paris, and that was exciting, and he met the Impressionists and discovered colour. And then he went to Provence, and uh, we are all enchanted by the landscape of Provence, and so was Vincent. So, he, yes, he was on the move. And the uh, the book is really a biography, Living with Vincent van Gogh. It's a biography, but a biography with an angle. It looks at the places where he lived, um, the cities and the villages, and the homes and the buildings that he lived in. So it's a biography which has got a sort of focus on it. There is a, 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 a nice section about his time in London. Of course, that chimes with an exhibition at Tate Britain at the moment, Van Gogh and Britain, which looks at that time and in, 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 as one aspect of the show. Can you tell us more about this? Because actually, at the start of his time in London, he's actually probably he's earning more than he would ever earn again for the rest of his life, isn't he? Indeed, and he was actually earning more than his father. Uh, he was aged 20, uh, which was a very impressionable age when he came to London. And it had an absolutely crucial influence on him. And I think one could go as far as saying that he, if he had never been an art dealer, which he was in London, he would never have become an artist. It would not have occurred to him. So when he was in London, he was working for a gallery in Covent Garden, a French-owned gallery. It sold a lot of high-class reproductions of paintings, photographs and um, engravings. Um, so he saw a huge number of images, and they also began to sell original paintings. So it exposed him uh, to art. And it was also very important in that he discovered English literature and the English illustrators. And those are aspects which are looked at at the exhibition at Tate Britain. Can you tell us more about his emotional life in London? Because I think, again, this is something that's really nice in the book. You, you, you deal with the details of place, you deal with his working life. But of course, you you begin to hint at some of the later troubles he would experience uh, in terms of his mental health. And, and some of that was emerging in London, wasn't it? Yes, I mean, I, th I think life is often difficult when you're 20. Um, he came here, you know, with very little experience of life. Uh, he'd been born in a little farming village in the Netherlands, and London was the largest city on earth. So everything was around him, uh, just near the gallery where he was working in Covent Garden, one minute's walk to the north was the vegetable market um, and next to it was the Royal Opera House that so was low life and high life and then in the Strand which was one minute away um, during the day there were bookshops um, uh, and uh, publishers there and then at night it was street walkers so he really discovered life in London and he also discovered it at the house where he lodged in Brixton because he fell in love and that happens at that age too and uh, there's been much debate as to whether he fell in love with his landlady or the daughter. Now, looking at all the evidence, I think it's more likely to have been the daughter. The problem was 
she became engaged to the previous lodger, um, so she rejected him. And in the end, Vincent was rejected in two senses when he was in England. He was rejected by the art dealer who sacked him in the end because he wasn't very good at dealing with customers. And um, the, the landlady's daughter rejected him because she fell in love with someone else. Now, he fell in love later when he was in The Hague. Can you tell us more about this story? Because it's it's uh, a heartwarming story to a certain extent to begin with, but it ends in tragedy, doesn't it? Yes, it's a real, it is very, very sad. And um, I've got a lot of new information in the book about what happened and done a blog on it, which will be on the art newspaper site. Uh, basically, I've discovered what happened to Seen Hornick, who was the woman that Van Gogh fell in love with when he was in The Hague and she moved into his apartment and they lived together for just over a year. Now, Seen was a prostitute, or she was when Vincent met her, and indeed Vincent was looking for a model uh, to, for help his drawing exercises and that's how they met. Um, and they then fell in love and she moved into the apartment. Um, it, it, she had had a tragic life. Uh, she'd had four babies with different men, all of whom had abandoned her. Um, and anyway, they lived together for just over a year, but um, neither Seen nor Vincent were very easy characters, and they came from very different backgrounds. And in the end, they split up, and Vincent went off to paint in the north of the Netherlands. Now, very little has been known about what happened to Seen, but I tracked down her death certificate, which has not been published. And uh, she died um, in Rotterdam in 1904, and uh, it was death by drowning. And what is particularly horrific is that Vincent quotes her when they were together as saying uh, that she was a whore. She admitted that she was a whore, and she said she would end up in the water. And that's exactly what happened. It's, this is a really awful detail, isn't it? And, and, and another awful detail is that her body is discovered by a garbage collector in the canal, isn't it? Yes. I mean, uh, I discovered, first of all, the date of her death from the uh, Rotterdam archive records. And that recorded that she died in a canal in Rotterdam. Um, uh, I then, having got the date, uh, found newspaper reports um, about uh, the drowning of an unidentified woman aged about 45 the report said and this was front page news in the Rotterdam newspaper uh, the newspaper did not name her but they gave her initials which is obviously conclusive evidence that it is seen and uh, it shows that, uh, that that's the way she ended her life she actually got married um, just a, a few years before her death and um, it's also tragic that um, her husband um, uh, lost her for a week, didn't know where she'd gone, went to the police. And then the police told her that um, it, it sounded as if it, his, it was his wife who had been found. And the body had actually been buried that morning. And the police insisted that the body, uh, the corpse, be um, uh, exhumed um, and identified properly. So it was a tragic story. I mean, uh, it's very difficult for us to imagine what life must have been like uh, during the 19th century uh, for women uh, in those difficult situations. And, of course, they were known as fallen women. And, of course, one of the sort of extra tragic elements of it is the sort of 
elements of happiness that actually come through in Van Gogh's works that actually depict a uh, scene because there are these lovely tender drawings. There were sort of more academic drawings where he's clearly studying the form of uh, a, fe- a sitting woman, for instance. But actually there's a drawing of, of her five-year-old daughter and, and her, her baby as well as, uh, as well as those sort of more uh, academic studies. Oh, he was, very, he was obviously very emotionally involved with her and indeed she was the most important woman in Van Gogh's life. Uh, and the only one that she actually, that he actually lived with. Uh, and I think that comes through in the drawings and also the tragic story of her abandonment. And one of the drawings um, actually has a quotation at the bottom, which Vincent added about women being abandoned. Um, so he felt very strongly. And indeed, he actually wanted to marry Scene. And he said he wanted to marry Scene because if he didn't marry her, if he abandoned her like all the previous men, then something terrible would happen. And indeed it did. So tell us about the the period after this. Um, obviously, the sort of the, the the sort of established narrative we know about. But he didn't just immediately head to Paris. He didn't, and and then you know the then there's the Provence narrative. What happens after the Hague? Yes, well he uh, he escaped, if you want, from the relationship and went to the a remote area of the north of the Netherlands called Drenthe, and there he started um, to paint. Um, it was winter time and very difficult, so he then came back and lived with his parents in the village of Noonan, where they were living. And he painted the peasants there, and he painted peasant huts, and he painted weavers. Then he went briefly to Antwerp, where he thought he would do a, a course. Uh, um, but he was always a very bad student, and uh, he gave up the course very quickly and uh, moved to Paris, where his brother Theo was working, actually, for the same art dealer, the same gallery. And um, it was in Paris that his eyes were open to modern art, and um, the dark colours of his Dutch period give way to the really bright exuberant colours um, which we know of Van Gogh. He then headed south um, after two years in in Paris. Um, he said he sort of drank too much when he was in Montmartre and life was sort of too stressful and he wanted a more peaceful life. And he also wanted to paint the landscape and uh, where better place could he have gone? So he first of all went to Arles and he was there for a year and a half and that was the time when he was living in the Yellow House and where Gauguin came and when the terrible incident of the ear occurred. And after that, the next stop was the asylum um, near Saint-Rémy-de-Provence, uh, where he stayed a year, uh, where he was looked after. But at that time, very little was known about mental health problems and even less how to cure them. Um, but he was remained there for a year. And then he, his last stop, on his long pilgrimage or journey, if you like, uh, was Auvergne-sur-Oise, which is a village north of Paris, uh, where he stayed 70 days and painted 70 paintings. And then the end came and suddenly he decided to end his life. He went to the wheat fields, shot himself and died two days later. One of the things in the book is that you've tried to find photographs of the places and also the rooms in which uh, Van Gogh spent his life. And that airless room with just a skylight uh, is tremendously evocative in his final uh, place, the room that he died in. in Yes. I mean, it was a tiny room at the top of the inn. It was a very small inn. And it was the the garret room, and there was just a tiny skylight. It let in a little bit of light. There was no window to look out uh, 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 the, the houses opposite, 
And it's, it's, he couldn't really even paint in this room. The light must have been terrible. Uh, so I believe he painted downstairs. And it was in this very difficult situation uh, that he um, ended his life. I mean, his brother provided money, but Vincent was terrible at using money. He just spent it as soon as it arrived. So he always found daily life very challenging. In terms of the narratives of the book, you mentioned a kind of journey uh, that he takes. Um, do you get a sense of his life being one of um, progressive decline or are there highs and lows in, in the, along, along this journey? Well, every time he made a journey to another place, uh, to another home, he always thought that that was going to be the answer to his problems. Um, he was always seeking and it never worked out. Um, and that's why he kept moving. Um, so uh, it, it is extraordinary the number of places that he, he lived in. I mean, he was in a, a dozen different places when he was, uh, an, over, at least over a dozen places when he was an adult. And remember, this was at a time when people didn't travel as much as they do now. Um, uh, so travel was a big thing. And it must have been quite disruptive for him. You know, he had to make new friends. He had to find out where to buy his canvas. Uh, um, he had different languages to use and he was good at languages I mean in addition to his Dutch um, he spoke English fluently um, French even better and he also spoke German um, Let's talk about the Tate Britain exhibition because you're a co-curator of Van Gogh and Britain can you tell us something about your role in the show because uh, it's, it's, it's a really intriguing show it's a show again of multiple parts Yes, I mean, essentially the two elements to the exhibition. The first is about Van Gogh's period in England between 1873 and 1876 um, and what he did here and what he read and everything and the impact later on him of English art and English literature and English illustrations. And that's an area which I had quite a lot of um, that I'm a specialist on. And uh, I actually curated an exhibition at the Barbican many years ago on that subject. So that's the first half of the exhibition where I sort of contributed most, if you like. The second half of the exhibition is new and breaks new ground. And uh, I was less involved in that. But that's the influence of Van Gogh on later British artists. Um, I mean, the first post-Impressionist exhibition was held in London, and indeed uh, the term post-Impressionism was invented there. And there were British artists who uh, were very inspired by Van Gogh and also the other post-Impressionists. And the show ends with a bit of a bang on Bacon, uh, who did a series of paintings of Van Gogh, based on a Van Gogh self-portrait of him striding through the landscape. So I think it's a very interesting show in that it combines those those uh, two elements. Um, the main curator, the lead curator, was Carol Jacobi at the Tate, and I was really assisting on the Van Gogh research. One of the things I was struck by when I was walking through the show, and actually I find it a much more moving exhibition than some of the reviews suggested, actually, was that on the one hand, you had this struggling young man in, in England. And then there's this period where you see his art ripping through British art, almost like a comet, and creating enormous amount of influence, enormous response from British artists. And I found that really exciting, actually. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, during the Victorian period, uh, there was very little interest um, in um, continental art in Britain. Um, and then it, just around the time of the First World War, um, the British artists suddenly got inspired by Paris, um, by uh, the Impressionists and by the Post-Impressionists. 
um, and they would often go there either to study uh, or to uh, work in the French landscape. Um, so it was a, a great influence. Um, I mean, one of the challenges for the exhibition is that it's often difficult to distinguish precisely what the influence of Van Gogh is rather than post-Impressionism in general, because Gauguin was also an important figure. But I think this aspect of, um, of the influence of um, the post-Impressionists on British art is something that has not really been appreciated, and the exhibition presents it nicely in a visual form so we can actually see the, the links between the paintings. And I think it should be said that there are some absolutely stonking loans in the show, aren't there? There are Van Goghs that haven't been in this country for a very long time, from overseas the sunflowers has traveled from the national gallery to the tate it, it, I mean, there are there are a load of really great I mean, van gogh tate did fantastically in getting the loans and i know you have to fight for every single loan when it comes to van gogh um i mean it's wonderful the national gallery lent the painting it only moved down the road um, and incidentally, I could, should tell you, in 1947, when the Tate wanted to borrow a picture from the National Gallery, it was actually sent by taxi. Uh, <laughs> now, things are different now, um, and it was sent uh, in a very high-security vehicle, I can assure you. And so there's the sunflowers, but there are also some very important loans from far afield. From Sao Paulo in uh, Brazil, uh, there's a, a very important painting of an Alesian uh, woman. Um, there's this wonderful painting from Russia, of the uh, prisoners at Newgate, which is a lovely uh, link. Uh, to, one of my favourites is a privately owned picture of a tree, but it's very, very striking. And um, there's quite a lot of Japanese influence in, in that picture. And that was one of the challenges of the exhibition because Vincent takes things like most artists do from different sources. So a picture may have a Japanese um, influence and also an English influence at the same time. Uh, yes, there are magnificent pictures. And finally, I should mention, of course, the starry night over the Rhone from Orsay. And last but not least, um, there are two self-portraits. And the most magnificent one is from the National Gallery of Art in Washington. Indeed. Martin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Living with Vincent van Gogh is published by White Lion Publishing and is $30 in the US and £22 in the UK. White Lion also published another recent book by Martin, Starry Night, Van Gogh at the Asylum, and that's $40 and £25. You can read Martin's weekly Van Gogh blog at theartnewspaper.com and Van Gogh in Britain is at Tate Britain until the 11th of August. And that's it for this week. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we'd be grateful if you could give us a rating or review on iTunes because it helps others to find us. You can follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio and The Art Newspaper is on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, of course. If you'd like to read more from The Art Newspaper, then why not subscribe to our daily newsletter to keep in touch with all the latest developments in the art world. Visit theartnewspaper.com and click the newsletter link at the top right of the page. The Art Newspaper Podcast is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack and David is also the editor. Thanks to Ben and Martin and to you for listening. Next week, as the Venice Biennale draws near, we'll have an interview with Ralph Rugoff, the Biennale's artistic director. Join us then. Thanks for listening. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.